Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah. I'm an alcoholic. And uh, it's so good to see Claire and Becky and all of you good people in Mississippi. And I, I got to be honest, I could listen to this accent all day. My daughter and I took a trip down south like we do every year. And I really enjoy <laughs> the accents down there. Anyway, um, anyway, Sarah, alcoholic. And, uh, you know, I want to start off by just telling the truth. Um, that, you know, when I, when I remembered I had to speak tonight, my first thought was like, I don't want to do this because for the last two days, I've just been crippled with fear and anxiety and I can't put my finger on what it's about. And I spoke with my, my wonderful friend Shay shortly before the meeting and, um, you know, and, and we ran through like what I'm doing, what I'm not doing and, uh, you know, checking to see if I'm really balanced on all three sides of this triangle. And, uh, and sometimes that's what alcoholism looks like for me is I could be doing everything. I could be doing everything. The book says I'm sponsoring women. I'm, you know, praying and meditating and I'm active in my, in my home group. I have a commitment and, uh, you know, I, I'm accountable to a, a sponsor and other women. And, uh, and sometimes it's just my alcoholism takes over and, uh, and grabs me by the neck and carries me around my life driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-seeking, self-pity, self-delusion. And that's what I sit in. And sometimes I don't know if that's where God needs me to be, you know, because there is no other time that I see God more than when my back is up against the wall and, and I'm uncomfortable and I go to God uh, for this relief. And sometimes that requires sitting in some discomfort, kind of like when I first came in and first finally accepted this spiritual solution that you guys were offering, the, offering the one that I was so unwilling to grab hold of for so many years. Um, you know, I, I lived in this place. The, the beautiful thing about being in this place now is I know it's, it, I'll get out of it soon. Like I know it's just going to be a day or two and I'm going to start easing back into, into the feeling of feeling right in my sober skin again. But I, that wasn't how I felt when I first got sober or even before I picked up a drink. Like I always had this feeling of dread and impending doom and loneliness and separation. And I would always live in these fantasies in my head. I'm always imagining the worst case scenario. Like that's just my default mode. Um, and I really believed for so long coming in and out of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous that alcohol was the problem. And I came in and out, in and out, in and out for many years. And, uh, and I couldn't figure out why I couldn't stay sober. And I kept thinking, all right, well, you just remove alcohol from me and then I'll be okay. Well, the problem with that was alcohol kept getting removed from me and I was stuck with me. And I was stuck with this, this feeling of, of discontent and restlessness and irritability that I lived with all the time. And I just didn't know what was wrong with me. And every single time I got separated from alcohol, I picked it up again and I couldn't figure out why. I just couldn't figure it out. And uh, even, you know, knowing what the consequences were going to look like, I picked it up. And uh, because at the end of the day, alcohol did something for me. And my real problem wasn't alcohol. My real problem was with sobriety. I didn't know how to live sober. And I needed to learn how to treat that. And the 12 steps have provided me a way to treat what I suffer from, which is me, my selfishness and self-centeredness, my fears, my resentments all the stuff that I carry around every day that blocks me off from you guys and blocks me off from God. And, um, and the beautiful thing about it is today is like, I don't have to pretend to be okay every day. I don't have to pretend that everything's okay every day. I can tell the truth that not every day in sobriety feels like I'm, you know, like I, I had this idea with that when I got sober, like every day I was going to be, you know, standing on a mountaintop and singing and, you know, spinning in a field. And that's just not the reality of it. But the beautiful thing is, is that for over nine years now, I haven't felt the need to pick up a drink. 
And that's a miracle. And that's a direct result of the work we do here in Alcoholics Anonymous, because that wasn't my story. I spent 20 plus years of waking up every single day with the obsession to drink and get loaded because I had such, such a spiritual malady and such a discontent in my skin that I knew that this one solution was going to work for me. And, and that feeling of separation and, and, and being apart from and being afraid all the time. Like I said, I, I experienced that as a young woman, as a child. And I, I don't have fun memories of being a little kid. And, and I know that's my perception of reality because when I hear stories about it, I remember last year I was actually at my mom's house and I was, I was sitting on her front porch and we were talking about my childhood. And I said, I didn't have a lot of memories from my childhood, but I just remember that nobody liked me and I didn't have a lot of friends. My mom looked at me like I had six heads. She was like, what are you talking about? You had more friends than all your siblings. You were, you had wonderful friends. You were always at slumber parties and, uh, and that's not how I remember it. My reality was different. And, uh, and that's the insanity of um, what it is, you know, my spiritual malady. And, and when I was 15 years old, I found a solution to the problem. I found a solution to that discomfort that I felt. I experienced this, this really horrific trauma at the hands of these three men. And my, my mom, um, she had a reaction to it that was less than perfect. You know, it was, you know, one of shame and guilt. Like, how could you let this happen? And how, how could you be so stupid? And, um, and I only share that not because it led me to drinking, but the trauma like did set off this train, you know, it set off a train of events that would, you know, I believe I would have ended up here regardless. It just kind of precipitated things. And because when that happened, um, when I experienced that trauma and I felt abandoned by the woman who I thought was supposed to love and protect me above anything else, I felt deep into this victim mode and, and I couldn't breathe. And it was, I, I was in so much pain. And, uh, and I needed relief from that because I wanted to die every single day, like living in my skin was painful. And, uh, and I, I, I can't tell you that I hadn't had a drink before that happened, but I will tell you that after I experienced that, I picked up a drink and I realized the effect that alcohol could produce for me. And, and it, it worked it like for the first time in my entire life. I, I, I felt like I fit in my skin. Everything was okay. I no longer lived in that constant panic and fear and hating those men and hating my mother. And I could talk to people and I could laugh and I could breathe and I no longer wanted to kill myself. And that for me was a miracle. And, and, you know, very early on in my drinking, I experienced a physical allergy. Like I, I don't think I've ever had one of anything. That's just not my story. Like my dad is a, uh, like he'll, he's a scotch drinker and he likes his 25 year old Glenn livid. And I'm, you know, holding my nose and chucking Everclear because I don't care what it tastes like. I just want the effect produced by it. And, um, and that's how it's always been. And, um, you know, early on, you know, it does talk in our literature that this is a disease of progression and, um, early on, if I had sufficient reason to stop, I could, like, I'm pretty sure maybe I started out as a moderate to hard drinker, probably leaning more towards the hard, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was able to stop if, if I was given sufficient reason, like when I got pregnant at 19 with my daughter and I, I stopped for those nine months that I was pregnant or eight months, I guess, cause I didn't find out right away, but I didn't stop out of any sense of virtue. I was more concerned about what you thought of me. Apparently it's a bad look to sit in a bar pregnant drinking. So I stopped. And uh, what separates me from the normal drinker, like my siblings is that for those nine months, all I could think about was getting that kid out of me. Not so I could look at her beautiful face, not so I could hold her in my arms, but so I could get loaded. And that's exactly what I did. Like 
Um, you know, I was always seeking for something external to fix what was wrong inside of me. So I had this delusion that if I, all right, if I have this kid and then I marry the guy who got me pregnant and, and, you know, maybe we get the right house and the right car and, you know, I get the right job. Like I'll be just like everyone else. And the problem is none of those things work for me. No human power could relieve my alcoholism. And, um, you know, so I have a marriage that lasts 10 months and, uh, you know, I end up with custody of, of a child that I can't really care for because the, my daughter's in the way of my drinking. And, and, you know, she's waking up in the morning and she wants things from me and she wants me to like take care of her and feed her and money has to go towards this care. And for three years, I believed I was doing my best and I was completely delusional. I'm constantly getting evicted from apartments and losing jobs and bringing different men in out of our, out of my daughter's life. And, um, and by the time she was three years old, like I just couldn't financially provide for her anymore, even with the support I was getting from my ex-husband. So I went to him to basically extort more money out of him. And he cut me off and took primary physical custody of my daughter. And, and, and the insane thing is, is like what I did externally is what I expected the world would, would, would want from me. Right. Which was scream and yell and try to run him over in the parking lot of the courthouse, like screaming, she's my daughter. Like you, how dare you take my child from me? But if I were capable of telling you the truth, which I was not at that period of my life, uh, I would have told you that I was relieved that I didn't want to be a mom, that I didn't want to be responsible for my three-year-old and that I wanted to be free so I could do what I wanted because I'm inherently selfish. And that, and, and that's exactly what happened. Like I was free and uh, drinking was fun. It was still fun back then, but it was slowly starting to dictate everything that I did, like where I lived, like I moved to Manhattan so I could drink in the bar till five o'clock in the morning. And I, I worked in the restaurant and bar industry because nobody cared if I came to work loaded. And if every relationship I had, every relationship was centered around drugs and alcohol. And, and if you didn't provide me with what I needed or, you know, drink the way I drank, or you dare to call me out on my excessive drinking, I moved on to the next one. And there was always a next one and a next one and a next one, probably multiple at the same time. And, um, you know, I finally thought I found another way to solve my problem when I met the love of my life in a bar at age 27. And I, uh, you know, proceeded to immediately move in with him and immediately, you know, get engaged when he pulled out this, you know, big diamond ring and he proposed. I really believed in my, in my heart that that somehow validated me. Like I was somehow going to be okay just because this man put jewelry on me. Like that's how insane I was. And, and it hadn't even occurred to me that I hadn't told that man a single true fact about myself from the day we met, that everything that I, I had told him was a lie. And, and that he didn't know that I hadn't, I hadn't had a, taken a sober breath from the day we met. And that I wasn't sober when we got married six months later on a beach in Jamaica. And that I wasn't sober six months after that when I got pregnant with our child. And, that, and that's when things started to get really dark in my life and the lives of the people around me, because I would love to say, and I ran on that solution too, that, that my disease only harmed me, but I, I was really starting to hurt the people around me. And um, so I get pregnant and, and I and a series of events and a mistake by a hospital um, led me to lose that pregnancy in a rather unpleasant way. And they owned their, the hospital admitted their mistake. And I remember this as sort of the turning point, um, where I sort of crossed over that line, you know, that, that loss of power of choice, um, you know, sitting in the living room, coming home from that is having surgery. And my husband is like freaking out and seeing how many people he's going to sue. And, He's so angry and all I, I'm just crippled with fear because I, I think I'm going to lose this, 
this safety net that I have, this life that I need to have to be okay. And I have to do something to fix it. So the only thing I can think to do is get pregnant again. And I end up after this really bad miscarriage, uh, five, five weeks after this, I end up pregnant again. And uh, I don't want to be pregnant. I don't even want to be alive anymore. And I cannot, cannot breathe a sober breath. I just can't. And frankly, I just don't want to. I don't want to, but I can't tell anybody this because I'm so full of shame because what kind of woman does this to her body when she's carrying a child? Like I was physically endangering this child and I was in two psych wards while I was pregnant. And, and during this time, my husband is finally starting to see the truth. And, uh, and as a direct result of everything I did during that pregnancy, my son was born three months premature and he was two pounds. And, and I remember looking at him for the first time in, in the NICU and seeing him in that incubator. And in that moment, I really loved him as much as I was capable of loving any human being at that point in my life. But what came with that love was an overwhelming sense of shame and guilt because I knew I did that to him. I knew I put him there. I knew he couldn't breathe because of me, that he couldn't be held because of me. I knew that was my fault. And I needed relief from that, that, that pain because of course I make his suffering about me, right? Because I'm inherently selfish and I need relief from that. So. I just need more and more alcohol. But the problem is my disease has progressed to a point where alcohol is not producing that same sense of ease and comfort. And I need more and I need more and I need more to get any type of relief. And, and our big book talks about this. It says like many of us had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them, even though we wanted to, because I... I'll tell you, I so badly wanted to be a mother to my children. I wanted to be a good mom. I wanted to be a good wife. I wanted to be a good sister, daughter, but I did not have the power to do that. The kind of mother that I was, was the kind of mom who nodded out and dropped her kids on the floor and, and drove into some of the worst neighborhoods in Philadelphia and left my child in the car and threw a blanket over his head on a hot day to go get a drink. And I was the kind of mother that when my son was eight months old, my husband gets a call from the police station saying, we need you to come pick up your son. We're locking your wife up. And uh, I came home that next morning and sick and tired after being bailed out and spending the night in a holding cell. And I, I remember this. He was, my husband had everything all packed up and he had our son in his arms and he was leaving. And he was going to take my son and, uh, and leave me. And I tried every manipulative trick I could think of, you know, I'm sick. You can't do this. I'm begging and pleading, even probably threatening to kill myself. I know I did that a bunch of different times. And, uh, and finally he looked at me and he said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll stay with you as long as you go to treatment today and gets over today now. And I looked at that man and I looked at my little boy knowing he was going to walk out the door. And he was going to take my son. And I said, no, I said, no, because I have a brain that tells me these lies that uh, I'll, I'll get them back tomorrow. I'll fix this tomorrow. But right now I just need relief. I need that drink. And I'm telling you, the shame of that moment was so overwhelming. And like he did leave and he did not come back. And I lost my children. Um, and I went to bed and I wanted to die. And I, you know, I'm, I'm a coward. I didn't have the courage to kill myself. So I just lay in bed, willing myself to die, drinking around the clock, stop eating all this stuff. And this went on for like two months living in this just dark, dark, dark place. And, uh, and at the end of this, this dark 
two months, my mom, this woman who I've demonized and blamed for every problem I've ever had showed up at my front door. She had driven two hours because she had a gut feeling that something was wrong. And she showed up and found me with a fever of 106 in, you know, blood infection, heart infection, 75 pounds, just simply dying. And, and she takes me to the hospital where, where the doctors say, you know, your daughter's going to die and you need to come you need to bring family here to say goodbye. And, and all I can do to this poor woman is scream at her and curse at her and, and tell her like, how dare you? Why didn't you just let me die? Because I'm so selfish and self-centered. I don't care that I'm asking a mother to bury her child. I don't care about abandoning my kids or what the, you know, the devastation I'm going to cause my family. I truly believe I'm only harming myself and I just want my pain and my suffering to end. And, um, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't die a month in the ICU and another five months in a skilled nursing facility where I needed physical therapy to walk. And I, I can't, couldn't stay sober in there. And I didn't want to, because the shame was so overwhelming. Like if I had even a brief glimpse of sobriety, I just wanted to crawl under a rock. Like it was so unbearably painful because for the longest time, I really just thought it was the scum of the earth. Like what kind of mother abandons her children? What kind of mother chooses? alcohol over her children. I believed that I had that choice. And it wasn't until years and years later until I was finally broken enough and a woman opened up the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and opened up to there as a solution and shared with me that for reasons yet obscure, most alcoholics have lost the power of choice when it comes to a drink. And that woman set me free. Not that I was you know, not that I was off the hook for the harm that I had caused all the people that I loved. Not that I didn't have to make amends and clean all this stuff up, but that I didn't, I, I didn't have to like carry this weight around my whole life that I was just this piece of garbage who actively chose alcohol over my children. And um, thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous and thank God for the truth written in that book, let me tell you, because it has set me free in more ways than I can even describe. But I couldn't get there for a really, really long time because I didn't want to hear the truth and I didn't want to tell the truth. Um, I didn't want to be separated from alcohol because for a while it was still working. And, um, you know, I, I this is what the next several years of my drinking look like in and out of detoxes, in and out of treatment facilities, going in and out, swearing it off like we do every time I'm in jail or I'm in treatment or any of these places where I'm physically separated from alcohol. I do exactly what our book talks about. <laughs> you know, I'm done. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to get my kids back. I'm going to be a drug and alcohol counselor. I swear to God, I felt that's what I wanted to do. Um, and, uh, you know, and I meant every, everything I said with every fiber of my being. And then they opened those doors and they let me out and I drank and I couldn't figure out why I just couldn't figure it out. Um, and I didn't end up in Alcoholics Anonymous until my son was six years old and being raised by another woman and calling her mom. And, and I, this is who I was. I'm that tornado. The book talks about in and out of my kids' lives, in and out of my family's lives. And I'm, you know, every time I have 30, 60, 90 days, I'm expecting a parade. And I've, I, I, I have that whole mentality. Like, I don't see anything that matter here. I'm sober. What's the problem? And just expecting everyone to just let go of everything I've been doing. You know, I, and I didn't end up in the rooms of AA because I was attracted to what was going on in the rooms. Like I would go into meetings and I would immediately disqualify myself, separate myself. I'm either way better than, or I'm way worse than, but I could never be just like other people. I ended up here because I was in a halfway house and they, it was a requirement that I attend five meetings a week and get a paper signed. So of course I just find a local clubhouse where the cute boys went and, uh, 
you know, I did nothing but date men, drink coffee and dress up the outside. Like I had always done. I didn't hear a word about God or the 12 steps or a solution. I immediately shut down when they started talking about anything spiritual. I really thought AA was like this life sentence of raising my hand one day at a time and telling you about my problems, talking about me. Let's talk about me. So all I ever want to do is talk about me with no solution. And I just thought it was one long drawn out group therapy session that I was going to go on till the day that I died. And there was really nothing attractive about that to me. But again, it was a requirement. And of course, I was getting what I needed from the people in the rooms because I'm a liar and I'm a manipulator. And, uh, you know, I dress up the outside, get a job at a diner, flirt with a bunch of dirty old men, wad up all that cash in my sock drawer because I literally owe everybody money. And I don't I refuse to make financial amends. I don't even know what they are. And um you know, I, I get primary, I, I get a supervised visitation with my, with my kids. So I'm thinking I'm doing great. You know, I, I get to see my kids and uh, I have a job. And now after three months of being in this halfway house, I can afford an apartment. So I'm fine. And then I don't even need these meetings anymore. And a month into living in that apartment, I'm at my daughter's lacrosse game and, you know, another supervised visit with my six-year-old son. And he looked dead at me and said, you know, you're not my real mom. Kim's my real mom because she takes care of me every day. And you just gave birth to me. And uh, it felt like a knife went into my heart. And I was counting the seconds until that boy was out of my presence. So I could get loaded again, just counting them because I knew what would remove all that pain. And that's exactly what I did. And then, and, and then it, it, exactly what our book talks about. I have one and a year and a half later that I cannot stop. And it doesn't matter that there are warrants out for my arrest, eviction notices on my door. And that in a couple of days, I had a court date set up where I was probably going to lose all rights to my son and I couldn't even make it. I couldn't even make it. You know, just like it talks about in the doctor's opinion, you know, a, a meeting that would have gone favorably to me. I would have continued visitation. All I had to do was show up with a clean urine. That's it. It's all I had to do. But I pick up a drink a day or two prior and alcohol becomes paramount, more important than anything in my life. And that's exactly what happened. And I, I'm still drinking a year and a half later until I'm finally physically separated from alcohol yet again by law enforcement separated for another year and a half, let go, sent to a recovery house. And they do exactly the same thing, you know, dress up the outside, find a solution, living in another recovery house, move in with him immediately. Don't do any steps, go to meetings only because I'm required to in the beginning and then stop going altogether. And then, and then I'm drinking with this guy. And, and that was the beginning of the end. You know, I had a lot of runs before that. And they were all long and drawn out at the end of them. I had nothing like physically nothing, maybe a backpack of clothes, but this was different. This one, I had roof over my head. I had a car, I had money in my pocket and I wanted to die. And here's the thing. Like I had spent years and years and years in the rooms of AI, many years. And, um, I love these traditions. And, and my favorite tradition is probably the only requirement for membership is the desire to stop. And what I love even more than that is none of you people ever judged whether I had that desire to stop because I didn't. I did not have an honest desire to stop drinking. I had an honest desire for the consequences to stop. That's all I wanted. I wanted to stop losing relationships, losing children, losing jobs. I just wanted my stuff back. That's it. I didn't want to be separated from the one thing that was that was making it okay for me to breathe. But this last night, May 2nd, 2012, 
I'm living in Philadelphia and I get on the highway at four in the morning to go get a drink and I scream out to God for the first time in my entire life because for in that moment, I had the most overwhelming and overpowering desire to turn my car around and go home and stop what I was doing and I couldn't. I couldn't physically do it no matter how badly I wanted to. And that was it. Like I knew this thing had me and I screamed out to God and I begged God to please, I'm sorry for my language, but fucking kill me or stop me. And I was pounding on the steering wheel, begging God to kill me or stop me. And 12 hours later, I was, I was locked up, handcuffs on. And uh, it doesn't matter, you know, how you see God. But I, you know, in my life, God has no problem showing up in the form of law enforcement. It's very effective. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I got separated. Uh, not the way I wanted because, you know, I was a little pissed that God didn't give me a nice cushy bed and a detox. And that, um you know, that I got a cold prison cell and I ended up in state prison and I was locked up for 18 months. And, uh, you know, because I had ideas of how I wanted this to go, but God had different ideas. And I'm really grateful because if it had gone another way, I don't know if I'd be here tonight. And, and it's interesting in hindsight, how I see that, you know, those 18 months that I was incarcerated with no solution in my life, no chemical one, no spiritual one, that for me is evidence that what I suffer from doesn't come in a bottle. It doesn't come in a pill. It doesn't come in any chemical form. It's, it's my mind and my thinking because I was a monster to everyone. I knew from behind the walls of a prison cell calling home on my parents dime on the money they put on my phone account, telling them what they needed to do for me and sending long letters home about how sorry I was. But if you were better parents, I wouldn't be here. Please send money. <laughs> I'm broke. Um, and, and I got out with ideas still about how I was going to run my life because I had this beautiful moment of brokenness. But in those 18 months, my ego did a beautiful job of rebuilding itself, of thinking I knew what I was doing. And within two days of me being home from state prison, every idea I had for my life was utterly smashed. And thank God I was left with nothing. I didn't have a penny to my name. I was wearing hand-me-down clothes for my niece. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a phone. And nobody in my family wanted to talk to me. And I'm curled up in the fetal position on the floor of a recovery house bathroom. And I'm screaming out to God all over again, because I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know why after 18 months without a drink, I want to die all over again. Why does sobriety hurt this much? What do I do now, God? And God answered me when I walked up the steps, crawled up the steps of the greater Northeast group of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't have any ideas left, nothing. And uh, I saw God for the first time in the eyes of a sober member of AA. You know, I've been in the church my whole life. My dad's a retired Presbyterian minister. I never felt God anywhere in that. I never saw God, but I come into the AA in that moment and I saw God there. And it was different because I had seen sober members of AA before, but this, this time, God, for people in my path who I drank with, people who were just as broken as me and they were lit up from within and they were sober. They were walking around with this blue book and they were talking about God in the 12 steps. And I believed them because I knew they didn't do that. And they didn't do that themselves. And I asked for help, like sincere help. And a woman took me through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and she took me through quickly and nothing about it was comfortable. Like that third step prayer. I just remember wanting to crawl out of my skin, like kneeling on the floor of that recovery. I was holding her hand and the, and, and I didn't even know what those words meant at the time. And I didn't know what decision I was making. But I know when I stood up from that prayer and she told me to start writing, something started to change because I had actually made a decision to take action for the first time in my entire life. It says it right there in our book, right after, if you turn the page over from that third step prayer, 
It says, although this decision is a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by the strenuous effort to face and be rid of what's blocking us. That was it. That was the decision I could never make. And I took that action and I wrote and I wrote. And of course, in the beginning, it's everyone else's fault, 27 pages of resentments. And I can't get, I can't get past those first two columns. Them and why. That's it. And, 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 and thank God I had a sponsor who didn't, didn't expect me to do it on my own. She walked me through it for four and a half hours while she explained to me every decision based on self and fear that I'd been making that placed me over and over again, decisions to be hurt. And, and, and what happened in that experience was not that I walked away being able to look the world in the eye and like all super excited about life. That wasn't my experience. I kind of felt worse than my first inventory, but uh, they will tell you. I started to see the truth for the first time. I had this shift in perception. Like my mom, she had a page all to herself. It was all her fault. Like as we work our way through these columns and we get to that fourth column and look at how self-seeking and dishonest and all these awful things I've done to my mother. We have this conversation and, and what, it, what comes out of this conversation is that I took this one thing, this one decision my mother made when I was 15 years old probably based on her own fear. And I allowed it to blind me to every beautiful thing my mother did for me my whole life, like showing up in rehabs and detoxes and, you know, loving me when no one else would. That's who my mother really is. And, and what, what, the, what this process started to do for me is it started to help me see the truth for the first time, because this is what resentment does to me. It blinds me to you. It blinds me to the truth. I can't see God. I can't see you. I can't see anything past the news on my face. And I suffer as a result. And, uh, and uh, you know, I started to get a little bit free as I went through, but I will tell you that I didn't feel God within me until I started making amends. And I sat in front of the people I harmed more than anything else in this world. And I didn't say I was sorry. I said I was wrong. And, and I, and I, and I allowed them an opportunity to share the pain I had caused them. And I asked them what I could do to make it right. And, and I started to truly experience these promises, these amazing promises, these extravagant promises that the book talks about. I started to experience them. But what I really started to experience as I continue to do this work was what the real purpose of our 12 steps is, and our, you know, especially our nine steps to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people around us. And God has allowed me to experience that over and over again in the years that I've been sober. And I would love to tell you that I had an experience going through the 12 steps and everything got great. And, uh, and I didn't fall short and I didn't step away from the program or I didn't get blocked off. I mean, I've made so many mistakes in sobriety and I'm here to tell you the truth. I have to tell you the truth. Because I, I, I've been in two long-term relationships in sobriety and one couldn't stay sober and the other couldn't stay away from other women. And I stayed really long in both of them. And I played God in both of them. And I harmed a lot of people in both of them out of my own self-centered fear. You know, I went through my steps again at the beginning of the pandemic when everything started to get stripped away. And uh, I hadn't realized how human reliant I had become you know, all of a sudden I can't leave the house to go to work. I'm stuck in the house with, you know, my, my housemate was my best friend, but he can be fucking annoying, you know, when you're stuck in the house with him all day and he got COVID and it was awful. And I'm a runner and I got injured and I was in a, you know, my relationship was tanking and he was, um, I was finding out over the infidelity and it was just awful. And I called my sponsor at the time and I was like, you know, I, I need to go through the, I, I need to do another inventory. And she said, I think you need to go through your steps. And I, and I went through my steps again and 25 amends. 
25 amends and that's eight years sober, eight years sober. So, you know, when it talks in our amends process about cleaning away the sweeping away the debris that is accumulated out of our efforts to, to live on self-will and run the show ourselves, it doesn't even talk about alcohol. I can cause just as much harm and sobriety. And, uh, and thank God I had the humility to admit that I know that I needed to do this and that I, that I was dying all over again. And, uh, and that I was willing to go through this process. And what I've learned in the, in the time that I say, stay sober, the longer I stay sober, the less I know. I don't know anything. And I have to stay in that, that place of humility and, 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 and being teachable. Otherwise, I'm going to miss some real beauty and some real freedom. You know, I've been given a lot of gifts and not of the, all of them have um, looked like gifts on the surface. But the ability to be of maximum service to God and the people around me takes a lot of forms. You know, the ability to be a mother to my daughter today, um, who's not just a mother, but she's my best friend. You know, my daughter, by all rights, should hate my guts. And she doesn't. She calls me all day, every day. You know, she tells me literally everything because you guys taught me how to be a mom. Before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I just had babies for what they could do for me. I actually didn't have a maternal bone in my body. And I'm probably a better mom now because my daughter's 27. So, <laughs> you know, um, but no, but seriously, like you guys taught me how to love my daughter exactly how she is and for who she is and not try to change her or fix her. And I, there's nowhere else on earth I could learn that. And so I get to experience that. And, uh, and through the immense process and through the 12 steps, I was given this amazing gift of um, not only having a friendship with my sister for the last year and a half of her life before she died, but being able to stand next to my mom in the exact moment that she saw her firstborn child in the casket and being there to comfort my mom, you know, at four years sober, standing there and holding my mom in, in, in her agonizing pain and making it about her and not me. And that's, that's Alcoholics Anonymous. That's God. That isn't me. I'm not capable of that on my own power. On my power, I'm in the bathroom. I'm in rehab. I'm in jail. I'm anywhere. But in that moment, I'm making everything about me and I'm, you know, I, I get to experience these life events, these sometimes heartbreaking and sometimes absolutely amazing. And I also get the experience of just being present on a random forgettable Tuesday. Like I get to be present in my life today and, um, and, and I get to be of maximum service to God and the people around me when I'm doing this work, when I'm waking up in the morning and I'm and I'm going to God before I, I, I check Facebook, before I, I get on my work emails, before I look at my phone for any reason. Um, when I make amends quickly, when I've harmed people or when I'm honest and transparent about when I'm not okay. You know, I, I ran around AA for years thinking, oh my God, I have to put on this, this persona that I have everything together and that, you know, Sarah's doing so great. And that damn near killed me you know, between four and five years over, nobody would have ever known there was anything wrong. And, and I have, you know, I have all this insanity going on in the background. I guess it was three and four years, you know, I'm going home to an active heroin addict every night and I'm, and I'm lying to everybody when they say, how's your life? I'm like, everything's great. I'm fine. Biggest lie I ever told in and out of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's funny how, how quickly I can become agnostic in certain areas of my life. I, I think I've turned my will in my life over to the power of God, but you know, I'll do it for me, but not for him. Right. You know, I'll, I'll give God this, but not this. But when I, when I do hand things over to God, like I've been able to like witness God working in my life. Like when, when I lost my job, um, 
and I was petrified. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. It's like four or five years ago. And I, and I just finally just every day put one foot in front of the other and, um, you know, kept relying on God and just kept sticking my hand out to other women. God put me in on, on the path to the job I'm on now. And then the crazy thing is, is like the job I'm at now is like, I'm a paralegal in a corporate law firm and I have 11 felonies. They provided me the ability to become a notary public where I was sworn in in the same, you know, courthouse where I was sentenced to state prison. And that's, that's not of my doing. That's not of my making. That's not something I'm capable of. And I get to live this really cool life because I've cleaned up this past stuff. Like I get to have stuff now, new car. And then, you know, like my bills are all paid because I've done things like paying the money back financial amends. That stuff's all great, but all that stuff can be gone in a second. We all experienced this during the pandemic when everything was uncertain. And, and you know, a lot of people lost a lot of stuff. I wasn't one of them, but um, you know, the uncertainty is there, but the beautiful thing is that, that I get the real gifts of sobriety, which is sitting in this house tonight and I'll get to go to bed tonight and my head won't be ripping me apart with the harm that I've caused other people. You know, I, I don't have to live in constant fear and shame and guilt of the things that I've done. You know, I get to show up for the people in my life that I, I get to do, you know, I get to be a worker among workers and I get to be a friend and I get to sponsor women and I get to watch their lives, lives light, eyes light up as they as they experience this and as they get their children back, as they start to sponsor other women, as they get free. And um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's been an amazing journey and it continues to be. I just started working with a new sponsor and we're going to start working on some new inventory because the reality is that's how quickly it happens. I just finished going through my steps and, and I'm already piling up some whoppers with some family members and some other stuff, but that's, just my journey. And that's just what I have to continue to do. I just can't stop growing. I can't stay stagnant in Alcoholics Anonymous. I can't do that. Um, I have, I am, I'm going to end with this. I always end with this because it's such a vital part of my story. And it, and it is one of the most important things I ever learned in sobriety. Um, I, I have a son I haven't seen in 14 years now. And, um, you know, when he was that, that time I saw him when he was six years old, that was one of the last times I saw my boy. And I have uh, made multiple attempts since I got sober to reach out and make an amends through letters to you know him and his father and his stepmother, and none of them want to hear what I have to say. I've followed up multiple times, and I still every month I send a card with no you know signature and just a note and some cash in it, and that's all I'm able to do, right? But they still don't want anything to do with me, and that's their right. You know, I caused a lot of harm there, and uh, a few years ago. I remember I was really, really torn up about this, like really, really broken. And I, you know, I, I started, I started going to God, like, I didn't know what else to do. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm grateful that I was taught early on that this is a program of God reliance, not human reliance. Cause the book doesn't say go to 20 different people and ask 20 different opinions and pick which, whichever one suits you. Because I had a lot of well-meaning people in and out of the rooms of AA saying, you know, Hey, get a lawyer. You never fully lost rights. They never followed through with it. Do this, do this. And I, what in my heart, what I wanted to do was like, go, cause I know where he lives and bang on his door and hug my boy. But I, I just knew in my heart, I could not cause more harm. And instead of doing what I wanted to do, I did what the book says to do. It was like, ask God for an intuitive thought or decision. And I, and I just kept asking God, this was like four years ago, like begging God, like, show me what to do. I miss my son. It's been 10 years. I don't even know what he looks like. Just show me. 
and it was Easter weekend. It was Good Friday. It was um, 10 o'clock at night. I remember it. I typed my son's name in Instagram. And for the first time in a decade, I looked at my boy's face through a joke Instagram account. His, his gr- girlfriend at the time, Nate. And he's so happy. He's a runner. He's beautiful. He's loved. He's He's got a wonderful life. And there's this like sense of peace that came with this. It's not that I don't miss my son. It's not that I don't want to see him. Is there's this peace there now, knowing that the restoration to this relationship is not going to be on my time. It's going to be on God's timeline. And it may never look the way I want it to look. It may be restored in some way that I may never be able to imagine. It may never look like me being a mother figure in his life. But God will fix it the way God is meant to fix this. And that peace and understanding can only come from a power greater than me. And on any given day, I can fall back into missing him and one in there. But for the the most part, this is the place I stay in. And that's a miracle because my my whole, for most of my life, I believed that the outside had to look a certain way in order for me to be okay internally. Like in order for me to be okay internally, for me to get and stay sober, like everyone I love has to stay above ground. Nobody I love can die, right? Because I can't stay sober through that, right? And I, I can't lose this job and I can't lose this relationship. And I definitely have to get my kids back. And it's not true. You know, I remember sitting in a meeting um, two, two or three years sober. And I remember they were, they were in chapter seven. And when I heard them read, let no alcoholics say they can't recover unless they have their family back, it's not true. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but when I heard that, I felt in my soul that it was true. Because I don't have my son back. I may never have my son back and I fully recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body. And that's a miracle. I, I haven't thought of a drink in a really long time. One day at a time, I get to live a life of freedom, a life of purpose, a life of joy, true joy. And I get to live a life of truth today. And that's important, a life of service today. And the really cool thing about it is I'm not special. I'm not unique. All I did was do the work. So this is available to all of us. All we have to do is work for it. Anyway, thank you so much for having me tonight.